A few years ago, uh, I watched a movie called Hostiles. Uh, it is a Western drama um, which centers around a battle-hardened U.S. officer called Captain Joseph. Now, in this movie, it's a Western, right? And in this movie, Captain Joseph has been ordered to take his mortal enemy, the Cheyenne War Chief, uh, Yellow Hawk, and his family back to their tribal lands in Montana. The whole journey, actually, as you watch this film, is, is full of suffering, bloodshed, and death. But in the middle of these horrific scenes, which are sometimes difficult to watch, we have some very revealing conversations. You see, among the people uh, in this afflicted group is a stricken widow called Rosalie Quaid. And in fact, Rosalie Quaid has just seen a, a family massacred in a red in the film. Now, in a brief pause of the terror around them, uh, Mrs. Quaid sees Captain Joseph reading the Bible. And so she asks him, do you believe in the Lord, Joseph? The captain says, yes, I do. But he's been blind to what's been going on out here for a long time. To which Mrs. Quaid replies, I can see what you mean. As I watched that, I thought to myself, this is how many people live. This is how many people think about God, isn't it? We believe in God, Mrs. Quaid does, does as Captain Joseph, right? To a degree. But we think God does not see us. He's not interested in us. And so what do we do? Well, we do what Captain Joseph does in the film, right? He relies on his inner strength. His hero is Julius Caesar, even as he professes faith in God. He really lives by Julius Caesar, the bravest man he knows. That's how many people live. But the Bible teaches us that, teaches us the opposite about God. It teaches us that God is very involved in our lives. God is not half-hearted as Mrs. Quaid and Captain Joseph think. No, God has come to be with us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that this morning. What does it mean that God has come to be with us in the person of Jesus? Well, first, two things. It means two things. First of all, that Jesus is God who has come to save us from our sins. We are reminded of this wonderful truth this morning, looking at Luke 2, verse 8 to 20, that account of the shepherds going to see baby Jesus. They saw God in the flesh. And we learn those two truths, isn't it? That God has come among us to save us, and he has come among us to save us by his sovereign grace. The God of the Bible is involved in our lives, and we see that in Jesus. Jesus is God. This truth that Jesus is God makes Jesus tower above every single person who has ever lived and will live. He towers above every single thinker, religious leader in history. In fact, someone has said this about Jesus. He said this, Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Yahweh. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claim to be holy. Confucius said, Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? 
Who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope, said Muhammad. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. You see, the proof of the divinity of Christ is not only in what he said, or even the testimony of God about him, or even how he lived, but it is especially in how he died, dying for our sins. And then rising especially from death. The tomb of Jesus is empty. Everyone who ever died has remained there. Buried. Eaten by whatever eats the bodies. But Christ rose from death. The tomb of Jesus is empty. It's not just empty. Jesus said it will be empty. And that is because Christ is the Lord of life. He says he lays down his life and he takes it up again. And he did. See, Jesus is the one true living God. So that's the first thing about this implication of this Christmas truth that God has come among us. It is God coming among us. Jesus is God. That's the first meaning. The second meaning is that Jesus is not only 100% God, he's 100% man. God has come to be with us in our flesh. He has become 100% man whilst remaining 100% God. Christ is one person with two natures. He has a divine nature because he is fully God. And he has a human nature because he is also fully man. And the two natures of Christ sit side by side in Christ in perfect unity without mingling. Christ is not two people in one. Christ is one complete person. This evening, what I want to do is I want to answer this question. In what way is Christ truly human? And what difference does it make for our relationship with God? We looked in the morning like what difference it makes that Christ is fully God and he's come to save us as God. What difference does it make, I'm asking this evening, that Christ is human? What difference does it make for our relationship with God? Now, this is a huge question. We could be here the whole night, right? But I just want to look at it through the lens of Luke 2, verse 21 to 24. So we are going to restrict ourselves to these verses that we have come to. Let me just read them again. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of tartar doves or two pigeons. I believe, as you can see in this passage, Luke is describing what happened to Jesus after he was born. And he's really, in this case, focusing on the human or religious rituals his earthly parents had to put him through. And as I reflected on this passage, I think there are lots of truths he's teaching us. But one, I think the core purpose of this passage is to teach us one key truth, I think, which is that God the Son was born and lived as a true human being to save us from sin. 
And we're going to see the way this passage gets that, across, gets that across. If you like, Lucas focused very much on the divinity of Christ and the fact that the one who's being born is Christ the Lord. And now he really wants to home in on this point that Christ is born from the womb of Mary and is circumcised and is very much living as a man, a Jewish man. These verses, I believe, answer our question. In what way is Christ truly human, and what difference does it make to our relationship? It answers this question in two ways, two things. First of all, which I want to look at this evening. First of all, Christ was born and lived as a true male man. A true human male. The male gender of Christ comes across strongly in this passage. We're going to look at that. And secondly, Christ was born and lived as a true Jewish man. So let's look at this closely, um, these two important truths closely. The first, Christ was born and lived as a human male, as a male man. Every Christmas we hear a lot about the glorious truths of God becoming man, don't we? And that is for a good reason. It is at the heart of our salvation. But sadly, that is where we tend to end. God became man, generic. And all the applications end there. But that's not where Luke ends. Uh, Luke wants us to be clear that Christ is truly human as a true male, we might say. He is not a binary human. He is a male man. The gender of Jesus shines out so brightly in these verses. You know, apart from the constant use of pronouns, he and him, right? We are taught explicitly in verse 21, aren't we? That like all male babies, Christ was circumcised. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Being conceived in the womb is reminding us that Jesus has taken on our human nature. The circumcision is emphasizing the fact that he's a boy, he's male. And in verse 22 to 23, we are taught plainly that he's the first born male, aren't we? Verse 23 there. Uh, look at verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Look, quotes that passage. From the Old Testament, because he wants, he is reminding us there, isn't it, that Jesus is the firstborn male. Earlier in verse 7, Luke comments that Mary gave birth to what? Our firstborn son. You see, Christ was not only born as a true human, he was born as a true human male. What does it matter? Why are we spending this evening just reflecting, uh, reflecting on that truth for half our time? Does it matter? Is there any theological implications for that? Was it just by a random choice that the Savior came to us as a man? Or is the male gender of Christ essential to his work as our mediator? Or to ask another way, could Jesus have come as a woman? Was it possible for us to have a female mediator? To serve us and enable us to live for God. And if the answer is no, does that have implication for how we 
think about salvation. But when we look at the rest of the Bible, the resounding answer is that there are many theological reasons why it is important for Christ to be man. Let me just share with you four of them. First, Christ came. It is important that Christ was male because Christ came as our second Adam, not as our second Eve. As the man who stands, Christ came as a man who stands head over his new and redeemed race. You know, it is interesting that although Eve sinned first in the garden, God went first to Adam. He held Adam primarily responsible for the sin of humanity. As the first Adam was head over his race, bringing it into bondage and death, so now Christ, the human male, is now head over his new humanity, his new human race. Christ has come to liberate us through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Only a human male could recover the glory that the first Adam lost. Yes, both the first and second Adam are, hum- are human, right? And we should acknowledge that. At the same time, we should acknowledge that it is important in the design of God that both are male humans, not female. So this truth of Christ being male is at the heart of our salvation. Secondly, the second reason it's important that Christ was male is that all the covenants in the Old Testament require that the Savior should be a man. We see this clearly in the covenant God made with David, isn't it? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 13, we have no time to look at it. But there God makes it clear that one day a son of David will, will be on his throne. It will be a male descendant who will be king, not queen, on David's throne. We also see it in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. It requires that the Savior who comes to bring forgiveness of sin must be a man. Not generic, must be male. And we know that because the basis of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is through the man of sorrows of Isaiah 53. Not the woman of sorrows. The man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief was despised and rejected by others. The third reason it is important that Christ is male is that the three offices of Christ require him to be male. We said this morning Christ has come as the anointed one, isn't it? As our prophet, priest, and king. But specifically thinking of Christ, first of all, as a prophet. Well, what sort of prophet? Well, Deborah is a prophet, but Christ is fundamentally comes a prophet like Moses, as Moses said. So he must be male. Because Moses said, God is going to raise you a prophet like me. Christ comes also as a high priest. He must be a new and permanent high priest whose office is secured as sins are atoned for and stands before God for us. High priests were men by qualification. He must be a king, I've already said, like David, isn't it? Not a queen. He must come as a glorious king of kings, reigning over the nations in glory. He has to be male. A man. 
So, you must be a second. Being a second Adam underpins that male gender. The covenants in the Old Testament underpins that male gender. The offices of Christ underpins that male gender. Well, let me give you a fourth one. Finally, the Savior must not only be the Lord and King of his church, but also our husband. He must be the husband of the church. Marriage pictures Christ and the church. The marriage picture would not work if the Savior is a woman. That is an abomination to God. So Christ had to be a man, right? That's given. And, and look here, shines through, I think. I wouldn't say it's a man point, but it shines that through. We just assume it as we read it. But it's there, and particularly there in verse 23. It makes the underlines, doesn't it? Every male who first opens the womb. But here's the question. What implications does it have for our life with God that Christ was born as a true male? As a male man? Well, let me give you again four implications of that. What implication does it have? Well, the first one is obvious, and we're familiar with it. Because Christ was born as a male, he is necessarily human, isn't it? Right? Male, human, right? And all the benefits, therefore, of his humanity are for us. It's an obvious point, but it's very important, right? Christ was born, lived, died, rose from death, and is in heaven now truly human. God in Jesus has taken on our human nature and human servitude. The humanity of Jesus therefore matters, doesn't it? Uh, it matters, why? Because it is the humanity of Christ that first of all enables us to relate to God. We can't be saved unless Christ is human. And him being male clearly ticks that box. Christ became human to serve sinners. Christ had to be God and man to serve us, right? Christ had to be God because only God could serve us. Christ had to be man because the work of salvation that he had come to perform could only be done by a human being for human beings. Calvin said. Christ could not have died on the cross for our sins and rose from death to give us new life without first truly becoming a human like us. The humanity of Christ, of course, therefore matters not only for our relationship with God, it matters also because it's a humanity of Christ that enables us to live for God through the ongoing work of Christ. We know from Hebrews that even now Christ stands in heaven as our high priest. How do your prayers get heard? Because Christ is interceding for you. How do you defeat temptation? Because Christ is praying for you. He's your human advocate in heaven, your high priest. You live the Christian life, you're living it because Christ, the man, stands in heaven for you. The other benefit of his humanity is that the humanity of Christ also exemplifies for us on how we are meant to live for God. Right? Because we see in Jesus, the man, the human, right? Our example is our example. Because Jesus, as a true human nature, men and women in Christ can learn from his example. No, now we can live as human beings before God. 
So the humanity of Christ serves us. The humanity of Christ enables us to live for God. And the humanity of Christ exemplifies how we live for God. So the first real implication of this truth that Christ comes as a true male man is that, well, he's necess- in being necessarily human and the benefits of humanity are for us. The second reason is this, and it's very important. Christ being male shows that gender distinction, the gender distinction God has given humanity is not arbitrary. The gender we are born with is God's wise and gracious plan. Now, we've taken this for granted in the past, right, as a society, but as the church now must proclaim this afresh. God deliberately and intentionally came as a human male from conception to be our savior. That not only means that he, 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 gender is given at conception, but it also means that It's a good thing, the gender God gives us, not a thing to be dismissed. Each of us should be happy with the gender God gave us at birth, because we know that he who made Christ a male also made us female or male at birth. And I would say that that that, that isn't simply that we should accept that as a matter of biological truth. We should accept that as a matter of experiential truth. As Christians, you should be happy with where God has placed you. And you should seek to live if you're a man. Be a true man. If you're a woman, be a woman. Live as a woman. And look through the scriptures and see what the scripture has to say about what it means for you. To live as a woman. Embrace wholeheartedly. Biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. So the gender distinction, it shows us the gender distinction of God has given us and not up to it. The third thing it does is that the male identity of Jesus underscores or reinforces the male headship that the Lord God has built into human relationships. It underscores or reinforces the male headship that the Lord has built into human relationship. Jesus' rose as king over Israel, as the Lord of the church, as the bridegroom and husband for his bride, the church. They all indicate what? Male headship. To put it another way, the real problem with egalitarianism, I can never say that word, egalitarianism, which teaches that men and women have the same roles and functions, is that it has a wrong Christology. Its beliefs about Christ are all completely misguided. They are not looking at the same Jesus, I'm afraid. It is impossible to be an egalitarian. Whatever, you know what I mean. The E people, right? It's impossible to be the E people. (laughs) Egalitarian, right? (laughs) It is impossible to be egalitarian once you understand the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. A woman could not have been our savior. In God's sight, that's not a bad thing. That's just God's design. It's not that women are less valued by God. God created men and women with equal dignity. We are all made in the image of God, men and women. In fact, 
It is the man and the woman that completes the image together. And that's why marriage is such a beautiful picture of that. Not just of Christ in the church, but as the image of God complete. So, the Bible is clear. Men and women have equal dignity and worth before God. And the Bible is also clear that God has given men and women different roles and responsibilities and different strengths and different glories in the church and the home and there, and I would argue, and wider society. But don't worry, we're not going to go there this evening just on that. The point is we are created to complement each other, not to compete against one another. God has assigned men and women different roles in his work in this world. Now, the role of the woman in the scriptures included being a mother of Christ. To lovingly bring him up in his humanity. To carry him for nine months, the Lord Jesus. To carry God in the womb for nine months. No man can ever do that. God hasn't given that glory to any man. He gave it to women. He gave it to Mary. Right? To carry the Lord Jesus in our womb. What dignity. What glory. But it did not include the glory of being a savior. No. We need to be clear that this male identity of Christ does not assert the superiority of men over women. It doesn't assert the superiority. That in fact asserts servant headship. Servant leadership, we might go. Men are called to lead. God has designed men to lead in the church and in the home. For the same reason that Christ came as a man to lead his bride, the church. It's so important, ladies, especially, you get that. The Savior you love sets the template for how your homes should be organized. Sets the template for how the church should be led. We cannot affirm the theological necessity of Christ's male identity that undergirds male headship and hold on to egalitarian commitments. We can't do that. Male identity of Jesus underscores and reinforces the headship that the Lord has built into human relationships. And so everyone else who's teaching you otherwise, wow, I don't think they are looking at the same Jesus we are looking at in the word of God. Finally, the final implication. I've given you three already. The final implication. The final implication of this male identity of Jesus is that the male identity of Jesus corrects on the other side, our tendency to exaggerate differences between men and women at the expense of shared identity. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, it is a myth that all men cannot understand women or relate to them. Ladies are fond of saying that oh, men can't understand women, and they are big on that, right? And we have books all written on that. Well, if that was true, then the man Christ would have the same problem. In his human nature. Are you really saying Christ the man doesn't understand you? 
As, as Pastor Gavin reminded us in his excellent sermon on this, uh, on this issue, he said the misunderstanding between men and women are a function of sin, isn't it? Not a function of differences in our human nature. We are all human beings. We misunderstand each other because we are sinners. And so women have no need to fear that because the Lord Jesus did not come as a woman, he cannot understand them in his human nature. Beloved, Christ understands you as a woman. Because by being male, he is also human, as I've just said before. And so our Lord understands the human nature common to men and women alike. We must never forget the common human identity we all share. And with all its common kinds of fears, or hopes, longings, and limitations, Christ the man shared our common human nature without sin. And the reason he did that is so that men and women can have full confidence that he understands our plight. We can have full confidence in him as our king, as our prophet, as our high priest. And we see that especially in Hebrews chapter 4. So this teaching that Christ came as a true male does not undervalue the capacity of Christ to be the high priest of women because, as I said, he is truly human. As a male man, he partook of our nature to live a human life and bear our sins. Christ is male and he shares the same human nature with all women. This truth also has implications, doesn't it? This truth, general truth of Christ's identity as a man has implications, in particular we think of eldership. Uh, but his capacity to understand us in particular, the fact that we shouldn't exaggerate differences between men and women um, at the expense of our shared identity as implications for the church, our church, right? We should not think that because the church only has male leaders, they cannot give us proper support. That's misguided. Completely misguided. The issue is not that we have men as elders in the church, and therefore women are not getting full support, right? And I know there's a tendency among some of us to think, oh, you know, she's got male, women issues and she needs women's support. No. The real issue is not the gender issue. The real issue is whether we have godly men who are walking and serving the Lord as elders and pastors in this church, walking in the fear of the Lord or not. That's the real issue. You are properly qualified men, and in all their weaknesses, they can support any woman in the church. With, as God has designed the, the support of their wives. So the church must focus on ensuring we are properly qualified leaders. And most importantly, we should remember that getting support from the elders in the church does not necessarily require the elders to give direct support. And I'll simply say that, therefore, it becomes just, let me track back a little bit. Just on the previous point I'm making, it's therefore vital that if people are struggling in the life of the church, they have real difficult issues, you make those issues known to the elders so that the eldership can support these individuals. And not simply assume that the problems they have are gender specific. And therefore, beyond the capacity of support of the eldership. Now, 
It's important we realize, I'm coming to my other point, that getting support from the elders in the church does not necessarily require the elders to give direct support, right? The role of the elders is set out in Ephesians 4. We are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And our role, therefore, is to support others to use their gifts. And especially we think of the Titus 2 women. It includes giving, therefore, that support to discipling older and spiritually mature women to grow in the use of their gifts and especially discipling young women in the church. However, this must be done within proper oversight of the church eldership so that there is adequate accountability. So Christ's name is not dishonored. So that's the first question answered, isn't it? That's, well, that's, that's the first answer to the question. In what way is Jesus truly human? And what difference does it make for our relationship with God? Well, the first answer Luke has given us is that Christ was born as a true male. A true male man. A true human male. And we've looked at the implications of that. Well, let's see if we can run through this one quickly. We have to be very, very fast here because there's a lot to think about. The second thing, and I'll be very quick, is that Christ... The second answer is that Christ was born and lived as a Jewish man. The ethnicity of Jesus has always been a matter of debate, uh, especially among those who have some interest in the arts uh, or want to criticize Christianity. You know, when you look at arts, art paintings of Jesus, we see that European art makes Jesus look European. African art, going back centuries, makes him look African. Asian art makes him look Asian, right? Right? It's just like that. Each culture tries to paint Jesus in their image. But despite these ideas, the Bible is very clear, isn't it? Here in Luke, Jesus was a Jewish man by descent and religious identity. We know that Jesus was born a Jew because his mother Mary was Jewish and she traces her lineage all the way back. And we know that Jesus lived as a true Jewish man by biblical standard. In fact, I, I believe this is the fundamental purpose of verse 21 to 24 here. And also notice verse 39 there. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And also verse 27 makes the same point. Oh, well, this verse is what I'm trying to do when you look at 21 to 24, verse 27, verse 39. It's trying to show that Jesus in every respect complied with the demands of his Jewish heritage. This is what struck me most about it. I think this explains why I decided to preach on verse 21 to 24. I just couldn't get away from that idea that Luke is making that's being so fundamental to what he's saying here. The law here is mentioned in, chapter, in this chapter, in chapter 2, five times. And it is more frequent than in all the rest of the gospel put together. What Dr. Luke is doing is he's emphasizing that Jesus was born under the law. Galatians 4 verse 4, isn't it? And he deliberately gives us the detail, Dr. Luke, to show that Jesus lived as a true Jew. Let us just run through this quickly. In verse 21 there, we are told that Jesus was circumcised. We've talked about that already, isn't it? And on, at the end of eight days, he was circumcised. Straightforward. Circumcision was given by God to Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, it was performed by parents as a sign that the male Jewish child was now part of the people of God Israel. 
You couldn't be truly Jewish without it. You know, there is a frightening passage in the Bible. When I first read it, I was like, oh, what is that about? Well, it's in Exodus 4, I think, right? And God wants to kill Moses. I mean, he's called him to lead his people, and now he wants to kill him. God really wants to kill this man. And, and I think the theologians think that at that point, Moses is sort of bedridden, really about to be killed, as it were, maybe by some disease. Why does God want to kill him? Because Moses hasn't circumcised one of his children. And so he takes Zipporah, his wife, to do that and save Moses' life. Serious business. Without doing that, Moses was cutting off the children from that Jewish heritage of being part of God's people. The circumcision is the way you are incorporated, as it were, into the Jewish, uh, um, into the people of God. And therefore, it's not surprising, by the way, that people were circumcised and named around the same, at the same, as part of one ceremony. Right? Okay? In verse 22, we, we see something else as well. We, we are told that Mary fulfilled the purification law for ceremonial washings on the account of Jesus. 40 days after giving birth, according to Leviticus 12, verse 2 to 5, we see that, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, that's Leviticus 12, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So Mary finishes that, and actually verse 24, uh, we jump to verse 24, because we see that's the offering that Mary presents as part of that purification ritual. She has to perform. And, and, and by the way, just as a footnote there, she offered a sacrifice according to what he said in the law of Moses, verse 24, the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Actually, the offering she was meant to give, which was meant to offer a lamb as a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a young pigeon as a sin offering. But for those who are poor, a pair of turtle doves or young pigeons is fine to cover both offerings. And this is what Mary and Joseph gave. We need to keep that in the back of our minds because what he's telling us is that they were really broke. They were really poor. They were really poor. And maybe we can redo the sermon we did and recognize that it's very likely that Mary walks all that distance to Bethlehem, pregnant, nine months, on foot. Moving on, verse 23. We are told about another ritual, aren't we? The dedication of the firstborn. Don't miss that. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. The firstborn male belonged to God in the memory, of course, of the Passover, when God passed over the firstborn children of Israel in Egypt and slaughtered uh, those uh, of the Egyptians or those who didn't have the blood uh, on the doorpost. So when we step back and we look at the weight of the whole passage, what it's showing us is that Mary and Joseph observed the law to the letter. And they did this with the burden of poverty. And all of that is just to show us that Christ from birth lived not only as a true male man, but he was also born and raised as a faithful Jewish man. Again, the question for us is, does it matter? Could a Zambian have been a savior? Right? We may ask. Well, the answer is no. He had to be Jewish. 
And we can run through that very quickly, isn't it? Why did Jesus have to be Jewish? Well, first of all, it was important to him being our savior to be Jewish. Because the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament is a Jewish Messiah. We've already looked at the passages. But particularly think of the covenant with Abraham. God chose the descendants of Abraham to be the people through whom he would bring salvation for all mankind in Genesis 12. They had to be Jewish, isn't it? We think of the prophecies uh, in, the, in the Bible, in, 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 for example, in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Micah 5. These are all Jewish, pointing us to a Jewish Messiah. So the burden of the Old Testament is clear. But secondly, the identity of Jesus as a Jewish man points us to his work on the cross. I wish we had more time really to unpack these verses and see how they point us to the cross, Right? But the thing is, we don't have time. But just think of circumcision. That's more obvious to us, isn't it? So, verse 21. As a Jewish man, he had to be circumcised. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. Why was Jesus circumcised? Well, <laughs> Jesus was circumcised first and foremost, we might say, because he was Jewish. Right? Good answer. If you get that, you get a good answer. I think 10 out of 10 still. Right? But if you said, um, Jesus was Circumcised because not only because he was Jewish, but his circumcision pointed us to the cross. Then we are like, yeah, okay, uh, bonus, bonus marks on top. Why? Because Colossians 2, verse 11 to 12, teaches us that the Old Testament circumcision, which Christ had, which was performed on Christ, pointed to his death on the cross. His death on the cross is our spiritual circumcision. And, that, and therefore, as Christ is experiencing these things, just as his baptism pointed to the cross, his circumcision pointed us to the cross. Now, Presbyterians don't like that, but as Baptists, having looked at Colossians 2, verse 11 to 12, we, uh, we, we, we take Paul's explanation of the passage clearly, isn't it? That circumcision points us to the circumcision that Christ performs on us through his death and through his death on the cross for our sins. It's the putting off the body of Christ in death. You could say it's God who performs it on us because it's God who put Jesus to death, working through the hands of lawless people. Finally, so, it, so the, 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 the Jewishness of Jesus, these riches are pointing us to the cross, well, finally, his identity as a Jewish man is part of his moral obedience. We are served not only by the, by the person of Christ, by the work of Christ, isn't it? We are served not only by the death of Christ, but also the life of Jesus. The fact that he lived a holy life. Jesus couldn't serve us on the cross if he had lived a disobedient life. But more than that, his holy life was exchanged for our sinful life. Right? The Lord Jesus fulfilled the Jewish religious demands as part of living a perfect life for us. That's what I'm trying to get at. As I said, in order for Jesus to serve us, he had to obey all the commands of God that was expected of him as a Jewish man. He had to succeed where Israel failed because he came as the Jewish Messiah first and foremost. Israel had failed to keep the commands of God. But Jesus, the true Jewish man, came and kept the law of God perfectly. He ticked every box. Who can accuse me of sin? He asked them. None. 
You see, when we look at the CV of every Israelite man who has ever lived, it only has one word on it. Sinner. Sinner. But when we look at Jesus' CV, it's written perfect. And the good news of Jesus, as I said, is that Jesus took, you see, this perfect CV to the cross and he swapped it not just for believing Jews, he swapped it for believing Gentiles as well. Anyone who trusts in him, as we underlined this morning. On the cross, you see, God the Father treated the perfect Jewish man Jesus as a disobedient sinner. He put on Jesus all the wrath we deserve. That's why Jesus died, isn't it? He died in our place. And he died to swap his perfect obedient record for our disobedient record and, and, and then sets us free from the wrath of God. Jesus did that so that if anyone surrenders their life to Jesus as Lord God, immediately God clothes him and not only gives him a, a new life, God gives him that perfect obedience of Jesus. The way I always put it like this is like if you're in overdraft, hold a lot of money, right? The death of Jesus, what it does is it, gets, it wipes out the overdraft. But it doesn't take you to zero, right? It, it, credits, it credits more on top of that. That's what Christ's obedience does. It adds more to our account. And so Paul can write to the Colossians that Christ now, uh, it will present us above reproach before him. More than is needed, as it were. So, what does this mean for how we live? What is the perfect obedience, just ending there? The perfect obedience of Jesus, a Jewish man, mean for how we live every day? Well, let me just, before I end. Christ has lived an obedient life for us. What does it mean? Well, it means we must keep resting on the obedience of Jesus. The man, the true man, the obedience of Jesus, the Jewish man. The perfect obedience of Jesus means we must not relate to God based on our performance. All of us do. We know we are served and kept in Jesus by the grace of God alone. We heard it this morning. Not because of our hard work. But sometimes we forget. We forget this morning's sermon. Right? We know that we are children of God by His grace alone. It's not our doing that matters. But we live as if that, that we live as if grace only gets us through the door. But for us to stay there, we must work hard to make God happy, as it were, with us, or He will boot us out of the house. And the result of that is that many believers live as slaves rather than love children of God. Because we live as if we're trying to buy God off with our works. This is not how God wants us to live. He wants us to remember that the perfect obedience of Jesus has already been credited to our account. You do not need to end God's approval. You don't need to try and make God become proud of you. God is already proud of you in Jesus Christ if you are truly converted. The gospel is not something we do. It is something done for us. The gospel is not something to be done in the future. It is something already what? Done. Accomplished. On the cross. When Christ said it is finished, it is finished. Our Lord Jesus, the Lord of the elect, our joy without end, our Prince of Peace, he has obeyed all God's command for me. 
And he's even gone further. He's done it not only as a man. He's done it as a Jewish man. Beloved, this truth is reminding us that we do not need to lean on our effort anymore. We see from the birth of Christ that Jesus is enough. Jesus is both our shepherd and our obedient and the obedient sheep before God. The shepherd and the sheep. As an obedient sheep, you obey the great shepherd perfectly. Now he is, of course, the great shepherd of the sheep. It's a mystery, isn't it? He's both our king of kings and the perfect citizen. Because as a man, he's lived perfectly before God. He's both our God and our perfect man, isn't he? You see, all that we need, beloved, in life is not found in our careers, it's not found in our marriage, it's not found in our ministry, it's not even found in this country. And these glories of the past or the future or the present, it's not even found in AI. All we, all we need is found in him, in this Jesus, the God man. So let us go to God this evening, isn't it? And repent of depending on our own effort. Ask him to help you grow in resting on the perfect obedience of Jesus for you this evening. So then, the two answers before we sing to our question. In what way is Christ truly unique? And what difference does it make for our relationship with God? Now, I'm, con- I'm sure I haven't fully answered that question, but we've restricted ourselves to our Luke answers it here. We need the whole Bible to answer that question. But Luke has given us two answers. Profound answers. Christ was born and lived as a true human male. A male man. And secondly, Christ was born and lived as a true Jewish man. And in both cases, he lived an obedient life before God for us. And as we've looked at these two issues, two truths, we, we, we have reflected on the implications it has for how we live for God now. These truths perhaps we have taken for granted. We have thought about just how important they are to the life of the church, how important they are to our homes, how important they are to how we relate to God every day. Now, Mary reminded us, didn't she, in, in that wonderful verse, which Luke records over that she treasured and pondered everything. Well, my prayer is this evening is that the Lord would help us here to continue pondering and treasuring that Christ is not only our God, he's also our man. He's the God of Christmas and he's the man of Christmas. He is the God-man of Christmas. Amen.